So good to see everybody this morning and to work. You guys doing good this morning? All right, three of you are doing great. That's awesome. The rest of you, you're in a good place if you're not doing good, right? If you're not doing good, you come here. If you're doing good, you come here either way. But uh, as Chrissy mentioned earlier, uh, we're launching a new series today called A People and a Place. And we're looking at a couple of letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament that are called the Corinthian letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And it's important that we distinguish these writings from other writings that we read in our Bible, specifically things that we read uh, in the New Testament. Um, when we read the Gospels, for example, or when we read the book of Acts in the New Testament, what we're reading is the history of certain events. Um, it's in those histories that we learn about the work of Jesus. We learn about the work of his followers. It's there that we understand more about who he is. But in the New Testament, there are also letters that are written that are by the various apostles that they wrote to different groups of people. Some of them were people that were in specific cities. Some of them were of specific ethnicity that they were writing to. But they were writing to address specific things. They wanted to talk about the distinctive ways that they lived out the gospel. Hence the name of the series, A People in a Place. So, so through these letters, the apostles are helping people flesh out the implications of the gospel and the teachings of Jesus that make sense in that particular context that they find themselves in. That's what the Corinthian letters are. Um, you might say it this way. You might say that they're practically applying the principles of Jesus in a particular place. That's what they're doing. So, so Paul's letters to the Corinthian church, they were, they were actually letters that were written to a community that he knew really well. This isn't some random group of people. In fact, um, Corinth was a really significant economic city. It was a port city. Uh, it was an economic center. It was an educational center. It was known for being modern and wealthy and diverse. Uh, it was also known for its worship of this pantheon of Roman and Greek gods. And so there were temples all around the city of Corinth where people worshiped these gods in different ways. And Paul actually strategically went to that city. At the beginning of his ministry, he went to the city of Corinth because he knew if we can get the gospel to take root in a city like Corinth, then the gospel could spread all over the world. And so he moved there. He got to know the people of Corinth. He got to, to live among them. And eventually he did form this community of faith in the city of Corinth. In fact, you can read all about this in the history in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18. You read the history of the apostle Paul going to this specific city. So, so then after a little while, after about a year and a half, Paul lives among these people. He starts this church. They begin flourishing. And Paul says, okay, I'm going to move on to another city, and I'm going to do the same thing that I've done here. And so he does that. But while Paul is traveling on his journeys, he begins to get reports of things that are taking place back in Corinth, and they aren't good. Like, basically, this new church is sort of fumbling around, and they're not doing all the things that Paul was hoping that they would do. He's not, they're not being who we would hope they would be. And so he writes them, and he instructs them, and he corrects them. Because his greatest desire, and I, I want you to make sure you understand this and catch this, his greatest desire is this, that they would be, that they would live as a people who were transformed by the gospel, and that because of their transformation, they would then transform the place that they live in. That's Paul's desire for them. That they would, as individuals, be so impacted by the message of Jesus, they would be so impacted by the gospel that their lives would be transformed. And then through that transformation, the place that they live, the city of Corinth, would then be different because they live in that place. Which, by the way, that whole statement, that whole idea pulls the curtain back, I think, on why a series like this is so relevant and important for us. Because much of the crisis that we see in our world today is related to what's being revealed in this specific letter. See, over the past few years, maybe the past decade or so, we've gotten into a habit of trying to frame 
or explain the reasons behind the various problems that exist in our world. But we have made a mistake of trying to define these things in human terms. And unfortunately, the crisis that, that, that we're seeing in the world right now, the crisis that we're seeing uh, around our nation at, at this time, th these aren't crises that are defined as the news reports them. If you speak to people today and say, what's wrong with our country? What's wrong with our world? What's wrong with this whole place? Well, you hear people's answers. Well, it's a political problem, or uh, it's an economic problem, or it's a justice issue, or it's a, it's a policing issue, or it's a poverty issue. And, and everybody has this issue. You know, we all say it's this thing, it's that thing. We kind of go down our list, and we explain these things as the news reports them in very human terms. But I want to make the case that the primary problem in our world today is spiritual in nature, that it has to do with the, the issue of spiritual vitality and supernatural transformation, similar to what Paul is addressing with the Corinthian church. Allow me just a moment to, to maybe critique my profession and my life's work for a moment. But I believe that much of where we are today is the result of the church being transformed by culture rather than the church transforming the culture around it. Just like Corinth. We are where we are in large part because the church has failed to present an accurate and compelling picture of the new humanity that is found in the spirituality of Jesus. Sort of soft-sold it to the world. Said, well, if you're interested, you can come. And, and we've just offered sort of vague platitudes at curbing people's behaviors rather than offering the vitality of life of a supernaturally changed heart. So, so much like the Corinthians, we find ourselves swimming in a culture of confusion, failing to experience the fullness of life in Christ, which is why Paul's instructions to that church are just as relevant for this church today. Are you with me? So as we begin this study, let me preface this by saying we're going to walk through these books very differently than I normally walk through books. Usually we sort of start at the beginning. That's usually how you start most things. And then you end at the end. We're going to jump around in these books and just address some of the main topics that exist in the Corinthian letters. You're going to see how abnormal this is because we're going to start today right in the middle. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This might be the first time that you've heard anybody read 1 Corinthians 13 outside of a wedding. Like some of you are like, is there a bride and groom that are going to join us this morning? Because that seems to be the only time we ever talk about 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But here's what's interesting about it. Those of you that know it, you know it's known as the love chapter. And I don't believe that Paul ever intended this, for this to be applied in marriage. In fact, um, I don't think that he thought this would ever be read at weddings because he's talking to a specific group of people in a specific place about how to live out their faith in Christ. And so with that, I just want to begin reading and then we're going to unpack this together. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. But we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, right? So what did we just read here? What is this? Well, what Paul is actually presenting to us is the marks of a supernaturally changed heart. That's what he's actually showing us. And there's a distinction, let me just say this, there's a distinction between a life that is changed the way that Paul is describing and a life that is simply restrained. There's a difference between being changed and being restrained. Most of us know how to restrain a life, right? Most of us have had some sort of experience where we were doing something or we were engaged in something and we saw the consequences on the horizon. Like we got into some sort of trouble. We got into something that was beyond us. And we knew if we don't change the direction that we're going, if we don't do something about this, then we're going to end up in this place. And so we restrain our behavior to avoid some certain consequence. That's called restraining. That's not called changing. It's sort of like taking a rubber ball and pressing it down really hard and holding it there. You can hold it for a while, but when you let go, it returns back to its original shape, right? That's just called restraining. That's actually not change. What Paul is contending for among these people is a supernaturally transformed heart, not just restrainment, not just temporary conformity, which is, by the way, critical to who we are becoming as a church and who we're becoming as followers of Jesus. Uh, If you've been here for any, any length of time, then you've heard me or you've heard our team talk about us transforming our city, that we're a church that is for our city, that that we want to see our institutions and our organizations flourish, that we want to see neighborhoods impacted and schools impacted, and we we want to see kids at soccer camps. We want to see hundreds and hundreds of kids at camps like the one we did this week. We want to see problems of social justice solved. We want to see justice delivered. That's what we want to see. And we want to see the body of Christ grow in our city. We want to see more people, not just at our church, but at every church in our city. That's what we want to see. But if we don't experience supernatural transformation, then none of those things are going to happen. I take that back. One of those things can happen. You can actually grow a church numerically without supernatural change. You can gather a crowd. You can do that. But if it lacks supernatural transformation, that crowd will never be a real church. It will always just be a crowd. It will never impact the place that it's in. And that's why we're looking at this passage, because Paul is contending for that these people in that place, what what he's asking of them is that what we would experience in this place, could we be a people who experience this kind of thing in our own lives? But I want you to notice something. I want you to notice how Paul begins, and I want you to see what he does here. Verse 1 again. Let me just read verse 1 and 2. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, what is he doing here? Well, he's starting by describing what supernaturally changed is not, but I want you to notice the details of this. I want you to notice that he says you can speak with tongues, you can have prophetic powers, you can have incredible teaching, but that doesn't equate to a changed heart. 
In other words, he's saying this. He's saying you could have the biggest church, you could have the hippest church, the coolest church, you could have, you could have the greatest church, most successful looking church in your community, but it could still be untransformed. You can be trending on Twitter and be untransformed. That's what he's saying, right? See, the Corinthian church was filled with all sorts of talented people. You know, I mentioned earlier, it was this economic center, right? It was this center of commerce and arts and education. And so Corinth was a city that was filled with ambitious, brilliant, wealthy individuals. So when the Apostle Paul starts the church in Corinth, he starts with these people who were coming out of that culture, which means the Corinthian church was filled with people who were talented and wealthy and brilliant. They had all sorts of skills. They had all sorts of talent. They looked really good. And what Paul is saying, he's saying, you can have all of that. But if you don't have love, it doesn't matter. You can have all the talent. You can look great. You can, you can have all the money. You can be the successful-looking church. But if you don't have love, then it means nothing. If the fundamental operating system of our hearts has not been changed, if it has not been supernaturally transformed, if the core of our being is not operating out of love, then it's all empty. It's worthless, he says. He's saying you can be really good-looking Christians, and you can have a really successful-looking church, and you can have all the great teaching, and you can have the best worship on the planet. You can have programs coming out of your ears. You can run camps for days. But if there isn't supernatural transformation, it's empty. Now, Paul isn't against bright and talented people. Let me just say that. He doesn't mind that. And he's not against the gifts that he's mentioning. In fact, just before this in chapter 12, he encourages them to pursue their giftedness. But he says, do not mistake talent and gifts for grace and truth. Then he goes to verse 3, and I want you to look at verse 3 with me because he kind of moves similar theme, but he moves to something a little different. He says, if I give away all I have and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I gain Nothing. And so here he paints a picture for us. And he paints a picture of a person that's so generous that they've essentially taken a vow of poverty. They're so committed to their faith that they die for their faith. They'd be burned at the stake. And he says, but if you don't have love, you have nothing. Well, doesn't Paul believe we should be generous? Well, of course he does. Well, doesn't Paul believe that we should be committed to our faith? Yes, again, of course he does. But what he's saying is that you can do all of these things. You can be so committed to your faith. And guys, we have to hold on to this for a moment. He's saying you can be so committed to what you believe that you die for it. But if you don't have love, you've completely missed the point. You've missed the point. And he shows us this virtuous person. He talks, about, he talks about talent in verses 1 and 2, and now he's talking about virtue. What he's talking about is a moral person, a good person who's committed to justice, doing the right thing, and they're dedicated to their faith, right? And he's warning them. See, all the great philosophers that were respected during the time he's writing this, in fact, all great philosophers have, have had some sort of list of virtues. Um, Aristotle had his cardinal, his four cardinal virtues of prudence, temperance, courage and justice. And then he had about eight others that he attached to that. And what are virtues? Well, essentially virtues are morals. So we're talking about morality. And here's Paul saying, you can be incredibly moral. You can be the most moral person in your zip code. And you can be completely dedicated to what you believe. You can be the most dedicated person that you've ever known and still not have a supernaturally transformed 
heart. In fact, I love what he says in verse 1. I love it about as much as I love getting punched in the face, but I love it. In verse 1, he says that my life, if lived with all virtue and morality, with all of my talents and gifts, is void of love. He said it is a noisy, I quote this, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, we read this in our culture and we only see half of what this is. We think about a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal and we go, well, that's annoying. It is annoying. And that's what our lives look like. It's annoying. But there's so much more when Paul says this to these people in this culture. Remember earlier I mentioned that Corinth is a center of worship to all of these gods of Roman and, and Greek background. Well, part of the worship of these gods was something called the processional. And so people would go into the temple. They would get on their Sunday best. Or they would go into the temple and they would worship these gods. And then they would come out and they would join a processional. And there would be gongs and cymbals. And they would walk through the streets and they would clang the cymbals and they would bang the gong getting attention from the God or gods that they've been worshiping and also likely the attention of the bystanders that were watching them. But they would get the attention of the gods and essentially it was this, it was essentially them saying, God, look at how good I am. Look at how I've worshiped you. Look at how good I look. Now, would you answer my prayers? Would you do what I've asked you to do in the temple now that you can see that I've come to you and I've worshiped you so beautifully? And so what Paul is saying is this. He's saying, you can use your talents for God. You can serve and use your gifts you can be generous, you can be dedicated, but if you haven't been transformed by grace and it isn't rooted in love, then it is just like the gong or the symbol, which is another way of Paul saying, it is just empty, annoying religion aimed at getting God's and quite frankly, others' approval. That's all. Which ultimately means that it's all about you. If it's not about love, then it's all about you. And therein lies the irony. Doing all these things, giving, serving, sacrificing, all these things, it's another form of self-centeredness. That's what he's pointing out. Sure, it looks like self-sacrifice on the outside, but if on the inside it's not rooted in love, then it's actually just about you. It's just about me getting what I want. If you're doing this because you want to be considered a good Christian, be known as a moral person, Maybe you, you, you don't want God to be angry with you or you don't want others to be angry with you. And so you do all these things trying to please. At the end of the day, it's not love. It's actually all about you getting what you want. So I keep saying love, love, love. And you say, well, what is love, right? And I just can't ask that without also saying, baby, don't hurt me. But that's for certain people in a certain generation. A little Hadaway reference there. But what is Love. It's pretty simple. Self-centeredness says it's me first and love says it's you first. Self-centeredness says my needs are more important than your needs and I'll trample on your needs. Love says your needs are more important and so I'll sacrifice mine. Self-centeredness says whatever I need is more important so I'm going to trample over you. But love says, no, no, your needs are far more critical than mine and so I'll lay my needs aside. See, external morality without a supernaturally transformed heart, it's sort of like a house of cards. Eventually, it comes crashing down. And that's exactly what had happened in the Corinthian church. See, what Paul is saying in verse 4, when he starts with the whole love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, when he does that, what's really going on is in this moment, Paul is starting to describe who they are not. He says, you've got talent and gifts and sacrifice, you're dedicated, you've got all these different things. 
But now I'm going to talk to you and say that is not love because love isn't. And he begins describing the characteristics that they're not. If it's not love, then eventually what happens to you? Well, eventually you become impatient. If you're doing all these things and there's not love in your heart, eventually you do become abrasive with those people that don't agree with you. You get jealous when things don't turn out your way. You, you, you become crabby. You, there's resentment that rises up inside of you. You stop believing the best in people. You stop hoping the best for people. That's what Paul's pointing out. He's saying all of this has collapsed. This is how you're behaving, and it's because you weren't doing it out of love. And so the question is, how do we get a supernaturally transformed heart? Don't, make, don't mistake active ministry for it. Don't mistake moral virtue for it. How does it happen? What is it? Well, it's love. Let me say this. A supernaturally formed heart does not feel love. It is love. Let me just explain, um, here's what Paul's doing when he's getting to verse 4. It looks like he's describing love, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth, love bears all things, believes all things, hope all things, love endures all things. And the way this is usually understood is this. This is the way it's usually preached, this is the way we usually read it and understand it. We, we, we see this. We see 1 Corinthians 13 and we say, well, it's not good enough to be talented. It's not good enough to be generous. It's not even good enough to be virtuous. It's not even good enough to be dedicated. You also have to be loving. But I want you to see something. Maybe this is the first time you'll ever see this this way. Paul doesn't actually say love consists of patience or consists of kindness. He's not actually describing an abstract principle at all here. He's not saying, if you want to be loving, then you better be patient. He doesn't say that. He just simply says, love is. And what you realize Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 13 is he's personifying love. He's talking about love as if it's a person. Love is patient, Especially when you get down to love does not delight in evil. He's talking about a person, right? It sounds like he's describing someone who, like, love hopes, love protects, love trusts. He's talking about this in a personified way. And we say things, well, actually what he was saying is that, that if you want to be loving, then you do these things. But that's actually not what Paul says. Paul is depicting love as a person, love personified. And there's two reasons why he does this. I'm almost done here, but I want to, I want to give you these two reasons. The first is that he depicts this as a person because it's the only way that love will ever come into your life. Nobody ever learns to love by trying. Do you realize that? You don't just read a list and then white-knuckle it and try to love somebody. That's not love. You only learn to love because somebody picks you up and they love you. That's how you learn to love. You learn to love by being loved, by being shown by others. That's why John Mayer says, fathers, be good to your daughters, right? Because daughters will learn how to love, right? This is a natural thing. Everybody understands this. Because love is an active force, not a passive set of principles. In fact, unless you meet love in the form of a person, you will never be loving as a person. It's impossible. Before love is something you do, it has to be someone that you've met. 
That's how you become loving. You have to experience love. You have to know love before you can offer it to someone else. Are you with me so far in this? And and if you haven't met someone who has filled the deepest part of your heart with love so deep that you're sure of that love, then everything you do, every good thing, every charitable thing, every moral thing that you do is an attempt to fill that void. And so that's the first reason that Paul personifies love. But why else does he? And even more importantly, where do we experience that kind of love? Well, let's go back to what he says. He says, love always protects, always hopes, always perseveres, and never fails. Again, it's personified. Why? Because he's not telling us what we need to do. He's telling us what we need to receive. You need a love that always protects. You need a love that always hopes, that always perseveres, a love that never fails. He's reminding of this. this. But where are we going to get that kind of love from? We're going to get it from our parents? I'm a parent, and I know my love fails. It's imperfect. Some of you, your parents failed you. Some of you, you've failed your kids. Are we going to get that kind of love from parents? Or how about your spouse? Well, it turns out spouses are made up of the same DNA material as parents are, right? (laughs) You say, well, I'll get that love from my children. You'll, You'll smother your children if you live that way. We need a love that will always protect and always hope and always persevere and never fails. We need that kind of love to fill us, to transform our hearts. So that when when we move out into the world, when we go into those places where God has, has placed us, we can transform it by the love that's in our hearts. But who will give you that kind of love? I have to believe that this is what Paul is pointing to by personifying this. In in verse 4, where he says love is patient, he uses the Greek word makrothymos, which is the Greek word patient. um, It's it's not the the true translation. It's the Greek word for long-suffering. And I can't fathom that when Paul uses the word makrothymos, he isn't thinking of the one who was long-suffering on our behalf, the one who says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't fathom that when Paul says love keeps no record of wrongs, that he isn't thinking of the one on the cross who looks down and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. When he says love never fails, you realize Paul was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant scholar. He knew that human love would fail. There's only one love that would never fail, and that's the love of Jesus. So Paul is personifying love because he's pointing to Jesus and the love that we experience in him. And and here's what he's saying to them, and here's what he's saying to us. What what he's saying is this. If you will read verses 4 to 8, love is patient, love is kind, all all these descriptors of love, it will supernaturally change your life when you understand it as a love you have received, not a love that you're striving for. When you realize that's the love that you've been given through Jesus, that changes your heart. When you look at those words, when you look at those descriptors and you say, there's a person that has loved me that way and that person's name is Jesus, there's something that happens inside of my soul. There's something that happens. So if, I'll close with this, if you are struggling to love, if you find yourself impatient or unkind or bitter or jealous or you're abrasive or just grumpy and people don't like being around you right now, there's a really good chance that you've taken your eyes off the love that Jesus has offered you. And let me say this. If you're exploring Christianity 
I hope you realize that this is not about you becoming more moral. It's all about you becoming more loved. Amen? Would you stand with me? Before I offer the benediction, I'll just mention over the next couple of weeks, um, we're going to walk through Corinthians and uh, we're going to have a couple of different guest speakers. In fact, I think in two weeks, uh, Randy Remington's going to be speaking, so that'll be fun. Uh, looking forward to him being back and in person because the last time we had him, we were on video. But, uh, but it's going to be a fun series as we walk through this, but I think it's also going to challenge us in some unique ways. I know it's already challenging me. So just open your hearts to that and, and be willing for God to just challenge you the way that he challenged that Corinthian church, okay? Now, the benediction, if you'll receive it, I'll offer it to you. It's this. May you be people who see that you are in a specific place for a specific reason. And may you never confuse gifts or talent or generosity or dedication for a transformed heart. And may you be known for your love because you have received the love of Jesus in his name. Amen. Amen. You guys have an amazing, amazing rest of your day. We'll see you guys later. Feel free to hang out, talk to some friends. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.